Welcome to Safe Dividend Investing. My name is Ian Duncan McDonald. I'm author of Income and Wealth from Self-Directed Investing, which is available as both an e-book and as a print book from Amazon.com. Tonight, we will be reviewing the first half of Chapter 5 of my book, Income and Wealth from Self-Directed Investing. Chapter 5, Stocks versus Other Investments. One of the richest men in the world, Warren Buffett, has a net worth of $82.9 billion. Recognized as being the most successful value investor in the world, he is quoted as saying, when we own portions of outstanding businesses with outstanding managements, our favorite holding period is forever. We are just the opposite of those who hurry to sell and book profits when companies perform well. Over the years, I have invested in stocks, mutual funds, income property, bonds, savings accounts, paintings, coins, and so on. My insights and conclusions about investing come from my experiences. The objective is to steer you away from the mistakes that I initially made and give you insight into aspects of the world of money of which you may not have been aware of or even considered. Savings accounts. The best place to start is with the most basic of investments, a bank savings account. If you have never previously had a great deal of money to invest, the first place this money would most likely be invested is a savings account in a major bank. Here you have a secure haven. The Canadian Deposit Insurance Corporation protects up to $100,000 of the Canadian money you have deposited. But this does not make it a good investment. At the time I wrote this, Canadian bank saving accounts were paying between 0.50% and 2.50%. The major Canadian banks were paying the lowest rates. The secondary banks were paying the highest. A quick Google search can provide you with interest rates of 30 or more institutions' savings accounts. Only one was paying 2.50%. It was a secondary bank. Most secondary banks are paying closer to 1.50%. To get the higher rates, in some cases, you would need to deposit at least $25,000. With inflation running close to 2% per annum, money in savings accounts is at best a neutral investment. If you consider that all the interest you will realize is fully taxable income, you are probably losing money by keeping it in a savings account. The banks love it that millions of cautious people deposit their money into low interest saving accounts. They then take what to them is almost free money and lend it 
to businesses and consumers for car loans, mortgages, lines of credit, credit card purchases, and more. In return, the banks will receive annual payments charges from 2% to 20% of the value of the loan to these borrowers. While 2% may not seem like much, when you are lending billions of dollars, it can generate billion-dollar profit. The shares in Canadian banks pay steady dividends between 3.5% and 5.5% to shareholders. It is far more beneficial to invest your money in bank shares than to deposit your money into a bank savings accounts. The side benefit is that as the share price of many Canadian bank stocks rises, the banks steadily increase the money they pay out in dividends. Thus, when you initially bought 1,000 shares in a bank for $50 each, paying an annual dividend of 4%, you were receiving $2 per share in dividends. When the share price rose to $100, the bank increased what it pays out so that the dividend rate would remain at 4%. You are now receiving $4 a share and putting twice as much money in your pocket as you did when you first bought the shares. Those initial $1,000 shares that you bought for $50,000 and were paying $2,000 a year in dividends are now paying $4,000 a year and are now worth $100,000. Could the shares have dropped below $50? Sure they could have. It is possible. But based on a century of historical patterns, it would be for a very short period of time. While the share price may drop, you still own the same number of bank shares. The bank is still operating, lending, and making a profit. Dividends are paid out of profits. The banks are very unlikely to reduce the amount of dividend money they pay out just because speculators have driven their share price temporarily down. Suppose the share price were to drop from $50 to $40 a share, a 20% drop. The amount paid out in dividends would most likely remain at $2 a share. The only thing that changes is the dividend percentage. The $2 payout on a $40 share price would now become 5% instead of 4%. I saw this happen to my bank shares in the market crash of 2008. While interest you receive on a savings account is fully taxable as income, the dividend income from Canadian companies is lightly taxed if your income is modest. Some investors whose total income is from dividends pay no income tax. As well, you sold none of the bank shares that went from 50 to $100. You would be paying nothing on the $50,000 gain in assets. The gain sits there like a reserve and can be almost instantly turned into cash if it were ever needed. Canadian banks are conservative institutions very closely regulated by the government. The major ones employ almost 100,000 employees and over 1,000 branches spread across Canada and the United States.
This geographic dis distribution means that a natural disaster in British Columbia can be offset by boom times in other provinces. Most major Canadian banks have been operating with great success through good times and bad for over 100 years. They are the ultimate safe stock and should be represented in all portfolios. Bonds. Bonds are loans made by companies and governments. They compete with bank loans. They offer those with cash a better return on their money than they would receive in a typical bank savings account. The money is lent for set periods of time, five years, 10 years, 20 years, 100 years, with a set interest rate being paid at predetermined times, usually twice a year. At the end of the set period, you receive back the original money you invested. This gives bonds a level of security that you do not have with shares. However, since it is a loan and not a share in the company, you do not benefit from any capital gain in the corporation's share price. Unlike a bank savings account, the government does not insure bonds and the interest you receive from a bond is fully taxable. Investors pay it by them because they are regarded as being safe. It is very rare for corporate bond to, defeat, to default. If it ever did happen in a corporate bankruptcy, bonds would rank ahead of shareholders and creditors in receiving funds from a disposal of assets. While stocks are easy and cheap to buy on a public stock exchange, bonds are not. They must be bought and sold by a broker who takes a percentage of their value as a fee. While I would buy $100,000 worth of shares for $9.95, I have had to pay several thousand dollars to buy $100,000 in corporate bonds. If you wish to sell the bonds before their termination date, you may find that in order to sell them, you must accept considerably less than what you've paid for them. This can happen if interest rates increased and the interest rate you are receiving now for the bond is unattractive to investors who can purchase bonds paying a better interest rate. Corporate bonds pay a better interest rate than government bonds. The financially stronger the corporation, the lower the interest they pay. Government bonds always pay less interest than corporate bonds because there is supposed to be no risk in lending to governments. However, countries have defaulted on bonds as well. While it is very unusual for a corporate bond to default on paying you back what you have invested, it is not impossible. Bond rating companies are paid to assess bonds. The best risks are given AAA ratings. Interestingly, the corporation issuing the bond pay the bond rating companies to provide these assessments. These companies getting AAA ratings do not have to pay as high interest rate to those buying their bonds and those companies whose ratings show they are a higher risk. Thus, a AAA rating bond can save the bond issuing company 
millions of dollars in interest charges. One wonders about the objectivity of the rating companies. A company getting a poor rating might hesitate to engage that bond rating company in the future. The banks pay bond rating companies to give them access to the ratings of thousands of companies. A company's rating is a determining factor in selecting bonds for their clients' investment portfolios. A bond trader assured me that they find the ratings reliable and sometimes the ratings are negative even though the company issuing that bond paid for that rating. She did agree that the bond rating companies were terribly negligent with their ratings on subprime mortgage-backed securities in 2008. It caused a serious stock market crash. Since bond transactions don't occur in a centralized location, you are never quite certain whether you are buying bonds at a competitive price or not. The return on stocks is about double the return you get investing in bonds. Bonds have little to offer investors hoping to double the size of their portfolios over time. Mutual funds and ETFs, exchange traded funds. The objective of a mutual fund is to diversify your investments over many stocks and protect you from catastrophic losses. However, high expense ratios, front-end and back-end charges, lack of control over investment decisions, and diluted returns do not make mutual funds a good investment. The broker sells them is going to charge you anywhere between 2% and 3% annually for managing the fund. In addition, the mutual fund's management company will also charge investors 2 to 4% either at the time they buy or at the time the investor sells the mutual fund. This is expensive when you compare it to an investment with self-directed trading account paying a flat one-time $9.95 to buy $100,000 worth of shares. By comparison, Buying $100,000 worth of mutual funds units could cost you between $2,000 and $7,000 with no guarantee that the mutual fund will make enough money to justify the cost. Be very wary of investment advisors recommending mutual funds from which they will greatly benefit. Investors and mutual funds are along for the ride. You have no control over what the mutual fund will invest in. There is nothing prohibiting a mutual fund from dumping the stocks now in their fund and investing the money elsewhere. You have blindly put your trust in someone you don't know whom you have naively presumed is an expert in selecting stocks that will make you rich. When you don't get rich but lose money, you then have no idea why you lost. You really have no idea what you were invested in and why you were invested in it. The analysts who picked the stocks in the fund may have quit and moved on long ago. Government regulations now direct mutual fund companies to diversify. They are prohibited from concentrating their portfolios in what a mutual fund manager may consider to be the best performing area. 
like speculators at a casino, there is the urge by some mutual fund companies to bet everything on what they think is a certain win. No one can accurately predict the future because economic and social conditions are constantly changing. The odds that a mutual fund can pick the right mix of stocks that can beat stock market averages year after year have proven to be just about nil. Stocks pay dividends and bonds pay interest. To derive income from most mutual funds, you often must sell some of your mutual funds units to get cash. You may have to do this after a mutual fund has shrunken in value. With fewer units, you have diminished your earning power and increased the chances that your portfolio will be worth nothing before you die. Mutual funds have fallen out of favor with many investors who now to per- prefer to purchase ETFs, exchange-traded funds. The transaction fees are lower than mutual funds because their management charges are lower. Instead of careful stock picks, as is done with a mutual fund, an ETF buys shares of all the stocks listed in an index. For example, if you bought every stock traded on the Toronto Stock Exchange Index, historical averages say you would show a capital gain of 6% a year. Unfortunately, if an entire index declines in value, the only way to minimize loss is to sell everything in the index. The fund manager then sits on the cash until he thinks the index has recovered. Once the index recovers, he buys back into it. The timing of the selling and buying is speculative and you can lose money if you are unlucky and do not get it right. Recognizing this problem, some ETFs now allow some diversity outside an index. They then end up being more like mutual funds with all the same problems as mutual funds. Real Estate You need to live somewhere. So why not live inside what may be your largest single investment? If you live in a large, rapidly growing community, your house or condominium could double its value in five years. The house I live in now is worth 20 times more than what I paid for it 45 years ago. As you approach old age, where living in a standalone dwelling becomes impractical, you can sell that asset and move to a condominium. You can invest any remaining balance after the sale and purchase to generating income. For Canadians, this is a real benefit because the capital gain you realize in the sale of a primary residence is tax-free. Not all communities experience increases in real estate prices. Deciding to purchase a home requires careful analysis. The average home conservatively increases in value about 3% a year. Since you should be able to realize at least 6% from investing in stocks, it may make more sense in some communities to rent and invest the money that would have gone into paying a mortgage insurance, heating, taxes, maintenance, and so on. 
This requires the self-discipline of making sure the saved money gets invested. Another real estate option is to buy an income property where perhaps you may live in one of the apartments. Finding a well-maintained, affordable, multi-unit property in a desirable area is difficult. The unit you buy may require significant renovations to bring it up to government standards for rental accommodations. This can be expensive unless you're prepared to do much of the renovations and maintenance yourself. Costs for fire alarm installations, inspections, lawn mowing, snow clearing, hand railings, intercoms, painting, garbage, pickup, laundry, equipment, insurance, heating, cooling, security, storage, parking, bathrooms, and kitchen renovations can be overwhelming. When your units are ready to rent, you face advertising expenses and demands on your time to show the apartment to prospective renters. When you do find someone who wants the apartment, it isn't just a matter of signing a lease and letting and getting the first or last month's rent. You must now spend time and money to verify that the tenant will keep on paying the rent and will not destroy the apartment. Why are they leaving their current rental unit? Are you acquiring another landlord's problem tenant? Upon renting the apartment, you need to budget for plumbing and electrical emergencies and setting aside funds to replace appliances and bathroom fixtures. Tenants can encounter problems that prevent them from paying their rent. Now you face the expense of evicting them or accepting that you have a problem tenant and the easy income you expected has evaporated. Removing a tenant can take months, even years, and can cost thousands of dollars in legal fees. If you have a separate residence and think you would also like to own a small apartment building, you will find that since the second building is not your primary residence, when you sell the apartment building, the capital gain is taxed as regular salaried income. If all your money were invested in rental property and you needed cash quickly, you can't sell part of the rental building like you can sell part of a stock portfolio. Selling your real estate at the right price can take months. The sale involves paying real estate agent commissions, legal fees, transfer taxes, and so on. The only other option to get cash out of a building is to mortgage it or to increase an existing mortgage, and this cannot be done quickly. To keep ahead of inflation, you also have to plan on presenting your tenants with a price increase each year. Every time you do this, you risk that they will now seek less expensive accommodation and put you back into the expense of renting a vacant apartment. While the expectation had been that the rent you charge would cover your expenses, there is a risk that your income property could prove to be an unreliable source of income and a money pit. If you want to own property, buy shares and REITs, real estate investment trusts, for both a reliable income and capital gain. Avoid the irate calls in the middle of the night for tenants complaining about air conditioning 
Our toilet's not working. Hedge funds. Hedge funds are like mutual funds, but with one big difference. They are marketed to those who think they are rich and want to become even richer. It is said that greed makes even rich people stupid. To invest in a hedge fund, you would be expected to have a minimum annual income of at least $200,000 and be able to come up with $1 million to invest. I am told the dealer who puts you into the hedge fund immediately gets 2% of what you invest and will take 20% of any future gain. Thus, you are immediately handing over 20000 to a dealer with no guarantees as to what you will receive in return. Hedge funds are largely unregulated and it is understood that few make money. Those managing the hedge fund speculate on share price gains and share price declines at the, all at the same time. Occasionally, there are spectacular wins. These infrequent wins suck in the rich speculators who, like lottery ticket buyers, think the next big win is just around the corner waiting for them. If you ever think you would like to invest in a hedge fund, think of Bernie Madoff. His hedge fund stole billions of dollars from many high-profile rich people. He paid very large dividends to investors by taking the money from the deposits of new investors and using it to pay dividends to the old investors. This Ponzi scheme worked until some of the old investors wanted all their money back. Unfortunately, Bernie will die in prison long before he finishes his 150-year sentence. His son committed suicide over the shame of his father's dishonesty. Next week, we will cover investing in collectibles like art, coins, stamps. Also discuss common shares and preferred shares. Thanks for listening. If you wish more information on investing and stock scoring, please visit my website, www.saferbetterdividendinvesting.com. Thank you.